0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for cocoa puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow, nor heat nor gloom of night, nor the toxic rantings of the Nuthouse right, a president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor More broadly, and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops, none of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week, after week, after week. Maybe not without fail, because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some r and with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror and our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Helen high water home office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays. Tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go. Ready to get back to cranking out more Tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be minding the store while we're away. And while these episodes come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new. They will be Piping Hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered at all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave it to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone john heilman here and welcome to hell in high water my podcast from the recount about politics and culture on the edge of armageddon with big ups to my pal rizza the presiding genius behind the sound of wu-tang clan and the producer of our dope theme music and i am back here again with my friend the co-creator of hell high water grace weinstein grace i have a special treat for you today on this episode
1: i know i'm excited why don't you tell us what it is
0: well it's hassan minaj and you've been enthusiastic about a lot of guests on this show but I don't know if there's ever one you've been more enthusiastic about than Hassan. He really resonates with a lot of people in your generation, and I'm curious, like, how did you discover him, and why do you love him so much?
1: My, my love for him really solidified with Patriot Act. I wake up every day and look at our horrible information and media landscape and wish that I had it every single day. That show just really set a different tone and brought my understanding of so many different subjects to a different level of nuance and a different level of like fury in the good way about all of these things that plague our world. And that's what made me love him more than anything.
0: We go kind of chronologically in the podcast, we play some very early standup when he was just a kid, really, in Northern California, which was good and interesting and different because he's, as he points out, he looks not like a lot of other standup comedians. He's a brown stand-up comedian, not a black one, not a white one, but a brown one. And then there's the kind of the move where he goes to The Daily Show. And The Daily Show and The Patriot Act are kind of a piece in a pod, right? Where he's really doing topical political commentary and comedy together. And I talked to him about what it was like, how much he felt odd to not have that platform. Like, wouldn't you like to hear Hassan doing... Either a thing on The Daily Show or more on like the Patriot Act about the SCOTUS situation in Roe V Way. You want him on that, right? Desperately,
1: and I would shell out incredible amounts of amounts of money to get that.
0: I think he really misses it and he talks about that. He misses that platform. He's an enormously generous guy, and he gives a lot of credit to the comedians who shaped him. And And then he talks about the trajectory that took him from straight stand-up to this kind of political commentary stuff, and then to what he's now doing. But here's a really interesting clip that I want you to hear. I said, who are the comedians who have most influenced you? And this is what he said.
2: I'll tell them in terms of superpowers. Yeah. Richard Pryor for his vulnerability. Okay. Chris Rock for his argumentation. Yeah. Cat Williams for his physicality and freedom and performance. Michelle Wolf for her joke structure. Mike Birbiglia for his timing, pacing, and how tight he puts his storytelling, the basket weave. Yeah. Chappelle for his candor. And Jon Stewart for his decency. Those are my favorites. Okay. That have had the biggest impact on, on me. So that's a pretty good list, right, don't you think?
1: Not only a good list, I love the way that he so confidently and clearly rattles it off. And my favorite thing about that is there is really someone in there for everyone. You can kind of identify no matter who you are with somebody in that list for any of the different reasons that he listed. As you said, he's different in, yeah. in, in the world of comedy. So he has to look to people for specific things that speak to him other than just like their front facing identity of what they look like and how they grew up.
0: Totally. The place where it gets really interesting in this podcast, I think, is when he gets to a level of fame around The Daily Show. He does the White House Correspondents Dinner, and he basically decides that just stand-up comedy, although he's good at it, isn't enough. He mentions Berbiglia, who we've had on Hell in High Water. You start to see the Berbiglia influence in the first special, which is Homecoming King, right? It's just not like that first Netflix special, and he says he really decided— that he was going to try to do something. He calls it in the the podcast, a calling card for the new Brown America. And the stories he tells are dramatic. It's not all comedy. He's storytelling. He's doing a monologue. And and a lot of the stuff that hits hardest in that show is the stuff that's about wearing, what he says, wearing the away jersey. He's not wearing the home jersey. And what that means for his comedy, that representation of not just groups that haven't been represented before, but the sense of being the other and, and kind, of, kind of using that to unlock a kind of set of perceptions. Is that part of why you think he resonates so strongly with your generation?
1: Yes, but I think what he's able to do on a stage is that he's not hitting you over the head with it. It's the kind of delayed reaction that you watch his comedy. It could be 90 minutes, it could be two hours, it could be 15 minutes of Patriot Act. And you walk away realizing that the otherness... That you're coming to understand is like an after effect. It lingers on the palette rather than being kind of the first thing that hits you over the head. So I think that's what allows a much wider group of people to feel comfortable coming into it and then Xing it out of it with, with a much bigger idea of what comedy could be and who comedians should be.
0: I knew Hassan a little bit. We've been on a couple of TV shows together and, and I know him through various friends and stuff, but I, I hadn't really grokked what a phenomenon he's become until I went to this tour he's been on now for the last six months or so, which is the show that's called The King's Jester. It is coming to an end right now. He is getting ready to go to BAM here in Brooklyn in June and shoot his next Netflix special. First of all, it was Radio City Music Hall. He sold out many nights. The crowd was more and more interestingly diverse than almost anything I've ever seen, certainly anything I've ever seen at Radio City Music Hall. And I will say this. This is a show that's about him examining his own narcissism. And the moment when he really blew up and he starts chasing, as he puts it, fame and clickbait and clout rather than staying true to himself as an artist and coming to grips with that and the risks it posed, some of them very tangible for him and his family, is what that show turns on. I'm not going to say anything more, but as I describe it to you like that, don't you think... I think I'd like to see that.
1: Oh, I'd be desperate to see that. And I'm also thinking, wow, there are so many other comedians who I wish would examine their narcissism in this way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i got to say, man, anybody who's not already a fan of Hasan Minhaj is going to love this podcast. He is brilliant and funny. And I think more than anything else, what comes across in this podcast— incredibly, incredibly authentic, incredibly real, and incredibly willing to look hard—not just at America, which he does with a sharp, incisive mind and a gimlet eye, but also to look the same way at himself. You're going to come see the show with me at BAM for the Netflix oh, special. Hundred percent. You're in. You're in. I've got myself a date. All right. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> as for a more present tense date, everyone should just sit down, settle in, get ready for Hasan here on this episode of Helen Thorne. Hasan Minaj, my friend, welcome to the podcast. We've been trying to get you in here for a while and it's great you finally were able to make it in. We got a lot to cover today. We're going to cover basically your entire career, uh, which is quite a thing to to address, but before we do that, I want to kind of just talk a little bit about what we in the in the journalism business call News of Day because there's been some pretty big news in recent days uh, that like has everybody in America talking and I, it made me think about, you know, what you would have done with this news related to the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade and abortion rights uh, if you still had the platform that you had at, at the Patriot Act and and the, the kind of topical platform and, you know, even on The Daily Show. And I want to ask you about that. But before we do that, I want to go back in time and play a very early clip of your very early stand up from way back in like 2009, where you are addressing a much younger Hassan Minaj addressing in comedy the issue that I'm talking about that's consuming a lot of political conversation right now, which is of course the fate of abortion rights in America. So let's listen to this. Hasan Minhaj from 2009, a very early, very young man, riffing on a very controversial social issue. I've been traveling a lot doing stand-up, and uh, i I've traveled through the Midwest like doing
2: all these colleges. And I was tra- driving through Missouri and I see like a lot of religious fervor there. I saw this pro-life billboard on the side of the road, right? It had a picture of a baby on it, right? And it said, this baby would have cured cancer. But someone aborted it, and it's like, ugh. <laughs> that's kind of dark, right? Like, and like, what's the likelihood that that specific baby would have grown up to cure cancer? That's a lot of expectation to put on one baby. I wish they had like a billboard showing the other side of the argument, right? Like, this baby would have grown up to be a serial killer, but someone aborted it. Good job, mom. Way to come through in the clutch. Like, oh wow. Like, <laughs> I don't even remember that joke. Later. Okay. It's pretty good. Yeah, it does. It's, 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 yeah pretty, it's halfway it's, decent. It's, it's, yeah. it's
0: pretty good. It's funny. I was thinking about it because before I talk about anything else, I just want to talk about this. You know, for a while with first The Daily Show and then with Patriot Act, yeah. we were like in the middle of topical political conversations all sure. the time and making comedy about that, right? Yeah. The thing that happened last week is such a big thing. I think in my history of covering politics, 30 years, Yeah. I've never seen a, a bigger single scoop that a leaked, Total. signed... Supreme Court opinion Yes, That's never happened before. There have been more impactful things. You could say all of Woodward and Bernstein news breaks leading sure. up to Watergate. But as a single scoop, reporters thought that was an unattainable thing. And right. on, along with Brown v. Board, like one of the two most famous Supreme Court decisions is that most Americans actually know what it is, right? How would you classify what happened? Is that technically whistleblowing, a leaked document? It, nobody knows. I mean, at this stage, not yeah. knowing who the source of it, maybe we'll never know. But not knowing what the source of their intention was, it depends on what they're trying to do. Yeah. You know? I mean, there's plausible theories about a conservative clerk who's trying to apply pressure to keep all five of the conservatives on board. There's theories about liberal clerks who are trying to alert the public that a disaster was coming. Yeah. You know, it kind of depends. And I think the intentionality will determine, if we ever know, would determine like what, how you would, what you would call it. But it's a giant thing, right? Totally. And everyone in America is talking about it, right? Yes. At that moment, do you miss having a platform where you're able to just be making comedy about a very topical, huge political news story where I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts and things yeah. to say? Do you and, miss
2: it? And it's one of those things where there'd be so many stories we'd be sitting on for quite a bit of time where it just is missing that last, yeah, but why is this relevant or important now? What's the peg? Exactly. What's the peg? Exactly. And I remember, funny enough, your friends with a mutual friend who was a showrunner for some time at Patriot Act, Steve Bodo. Steve Bodo had a pitch in one of the later seasons of Patriot Act on Trump and civil rights. This would have been such a great, you know, the rolling back of certain civil rights and civil liberties. And you're always waiting for that, like, for better for worse, why should I care about this right now? Because there's so many sort of existential threats that exist on right. the horizon, right. climate, et cetera. What happened just this past week is a prime example of that. We would be sitting on already 17, 18 minutes of a script and being like, yep, that's our top of the show. And then let's dive into the sort of deeper information dive. Right, right? so
0: you really would have, at that, for Patriot Act, you would have had like yes. B-Matter, basically. And yes. In the newspaper business, we call it B-Matter. You're waiting for a lead, yeah. but you'll have basically or an obit. It's like what your obit's written, and it's right, like, right. waiting for cause of
2: death. Now, like, funny enough, that clip that you just played from 2009, holy shit, Yeah. that would have been something that I would have pitched as an act one or act two chat on The Daily Show. Right. So right. Trevor or John, at the time, we would do probably like an act one, seven and a half minute sort of analysis. Here's what happened. And generally then in an act two or the tail end of an act one, he would throw to a correspondent and my comedic take there would be like, well, (laughs) should every baby be alive or whatever my sort of satirical (laughs) wink, wink take is that then lets us land with then a more poignant, salient sort of argument where John or Trevor's playing the straight man.
0: And then I get to kind of be the satirical goofy nitwit. There's one answer to that question, which is sort of like, oh, yeah, if I think about it, it would have been cool if this story happened when I was doing those things. Yes. There's another like slightly different version of that of the question and answer, which is, do you miss it? Like, do you wake up Mm -hmm. at home in Greenwich, Connecticut and go, fuck, I really wish I had a place to go talk about this? Or do you basically go like, I'm kind of out of that business now. I obviously still care about politics, but I don't miss the platform.
2: Yeah. Yes or no. So here's what deeply kind of disappoints me and where I I feel a deep sense of disillusionment. And I'd love your take on this and, and the work you're currently doing. Something that's so deeply frustrating is it's funny that you said, you know, this is one of the biggest stories and everyone's talking about it. Yeah. Yes, and what's also taking up 50 to 60% of the discourse is Dave Chappelle getting tackled at the Hollywood Bowl. Like those two having equal amount of airspace in the sort of Twitter news feed yeah. or the sort of cultural zeitgeist and milieu is kind of disappointing. And so yeah. it's part of that that makes me feel like. Yeah, I don't miss also being entrenched in other right. culture war issues that I don't yeah. care about. I like doing the kind of deep, meaningful work right. that I'm getting to do with King's Jester and other projects that I'm working on.
0: Yeah. And you, also, do you know like, what I mean? Yes, and at the same time, you would also, I mean, the Chappelle thing even seems serious compared to yeah. Olivia Wilde or whatever her name is getting served custody papers by Jason Sudeikis at Comic-Con or whatever. You're like, really? When I open up my Google search, it's like, you know, Roe v. Wade being struck down, Dave Chappelle being attacked, yeah, uh, yeah. and a Netflix thing, and is uh, this a broken, broken up couple embarrassing each other with their custody papers. It's like a little... Bug and, it, and
2: it becomes this, you know, Rorschach test where the event itself, I don't think, is wildly impactful on a lot of people's lives, and yet it becomes this larger Rorschach test about, you know, I guess in the case of the Olivia Wild* thing, of just like power dynamics, relationships. What's Jason Sudeikis like? What is Olivia Wilde like? Analysis of her relationship with Harry Styles. It's all these things that, you know, just candidly, I don't really care for, but I would get inadvertently pulled into it. We'd have to do a joke, TK, joke to come, some topical joke to get into a story. It's stuff like that where I'm like, yeah, I don't miss this part of it, but I do miss moments like that to have a deep, meaningful kind of conversation through comedy.
0: So it's funny because like on a thing like, Scotus, right? You get scolded sometimes by people because you're like trying to figure out the question of what are the theories about why it was leaked? What were they trying to accomplish? What's going on here, right? Yeah. And people say, "Don't forget about that. It's going to impact the lives of millions of women." To which I say, well, "Yes, that's 100 percent true, and we should cover it that way." Yeah. What does this mean for women in America? But we could also have another discussion about the power dynamics of the court. I think you can do both those things sure, as long sure. as you're appropriate about it. I mean, when I think about the way you did what you did when you were at Daily Show in one form and then at Patriot Act in a different form, like. You were doing a mix of analysis, commentary, and comedy all kind of rolled up into one at yeah. that place, right? Yeah, yeah. This and we just played is it, just very early stand-up, yeah. but it's still it's abortion. To make anything funny about it, yeah. it's hard. So how would you think about that? Like in any of those roles, this is a big thing. Everyone's talking about it right now, Right. but I'm basically a comedian. I'm yeah. other things maybe, but I, quite at heart, I want to make people laugh, right? Yeah. So how do you think about a really tough issue like abortion and think, here's how we could go at it and make it funny?
2: Sure. I think one of the best exercises that I was given later in my career by this amazing stage director named Greg Wallach, he directed my first special, Homecoming King. And that kind of was my first claim to fame, so to speak, in the stand-up touring storytelling space. But he gave me this exercise whenever we would work through the show and we would trim it down. How does this make you think and how does it make you feel? What are you thinking right now and how does it make you feel? And I think some of my best jokes, that's the starting point. And if I can really break that down in a new clever innovative way, those are my favorite types of jokes. There's a comic right now, I don't know if you've seen her work, I, I really love her work, Taylor Tomlinson. No. She's just whip smart, so funny. Have you seen her work? <laughs> She's so hilarious. Watch her special on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. What I love about Taylor's work is she is covering topics that I've heard a million different takes on. But the way it makes her think and feel, she's talking about it in a whole new way. Yeah. It's the thing we all felt when we saw Gaffigan in some of his breakthrough. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. like, oh, Hot Pockets and food and McDonald's right. french fries. They've been here for decades, <laughs> and a very long time. <laughs> yeah. And he found a new way to talk about food in, in a really interesting, innovative way. But what Taylor's doing with mental health or therapy and just all these new spaces that I've, I've heard a ton of takes on. The way she talks about the way she thinks about it and the way it makes her feel is really innovative and new and interesting. So with difficult topics like that, yeah, the first thing I'm going is, what do I feel about this right now? And it's a very just personal thing. That's what I love most about comedy, that act of introspection. Ah, something's sitting with me here. Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this way about it? I have to get that out.
0: It's funny because when Berbiclio was here, we were talking about Tig Notaro and her breast cancer thing, which is yeah. kind of in that same zone of like, you know, do a comedy act about, totally. your, about having breast cancer. And like, and she just goes there and somehow like the high wire act quality of that, sure. which I think is true with a, a thing like abortion if you're a dude, you know in this world we live in now you don't have full scale permission to talk sure. about it and this is where the two things come together the cancel culture stuff it's like yeah, you're yeah. like how do i do something that's brave and interesting and new right. but now there's all these tripwires all over the place sure. we'll talk about this more later but on a topic like that yeah. would that be something that you would be like you know what this is not going to be worth the fucking trouble there are things like this in my life doing political commentary where i go I just, you know, I'm never going to be able to explain myself adequately. If I over dinner, I explained the nuance of my thing with my friends, they would go, oh, I totally get sure. it. But I, I, I on cable hit, let alone Twitter, yeah, I can't talk about this without, in a way, that's going to be adequate to it. And so I'm just like, it's not going to be worth the trouble.
2: I hear what you're saying. And one of the things I feel right now is that we're drowning in opinion. Yeah. In Twitter and Twitter commentary and the speed at which everyone is pumping out takes yeah. and short form premise punchline kind of. Quippy takes on every topic, I would rather focus my energy, if I don't have a show like that, focus it on storytelling. And storytelling allows me to talk about something with a level of sincerity and authenticity. It may not be as trendy and hot in the moment, but I do think it allows the listener and the viewer to go, he's speaking from a real place. And so at least he's being authentic and genuine. And... That, to me, is a little bit more interesting if I don't have a show. Now, Trevor, he has to carry that. Yeah. Steven, yeah. Samantha B, they yeah. have to carry that. Yeah. How are we going to talk about this, yeah. given the premise and the sort of expectation they have with their audience right. through the show?
0: Which is that but you cannot talk about it. You cannot talk about it. And you yeah. also know it's super dangerous it was like hey that's the job that's who you signed up for you know yeah. no, no, don't whine about it and I think obviously that's the right thing especially with a lot of people who are making a ton of money to do that's like well that's the risk you got you're not breaking rocks in the hot sun so like you know man up and or lady up and do it but it's, yeah. um, it's tricky so here I'll play this thing you did an interview just the last thing on abortion because it raises this issue about another sure. thing that artists have to contend with you did sure. this interview with a lot of Glazer couple years ago, May 2019. Wow. And she says in this interview yeah. uh, on, she said that you know Georgia had just passed a newly restrictive law uh-huh. and she was supposed to be making a movie in Georgia. And she said, I'm not gonna make that movie. I'm not gonna make it there. I'm, sure. We're gonna move it someplace else. Sure. And you who were interviewing her, she was really talking, 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 talking. And all of a sudden you kind of weighed in. When she said this thing about how she wouldn't now make the movie in, in Atlanta, yeah. you had a different opinion. So I wanna hear, I wanna oh, yeah, sure, yeah. we'll talk about
2: it. Let's hear it yeah it's interesting, you know, like I know the NBA very actively with the with the bathroom bill stuff was just like, hey, we're not going to you know participate or we're not going to wow. endorse this. That is so cool. yeah Adam Silver's a great commissioner eddie didn't didn't Adam Silver do that? What's remember what the when, when the bathroom <laughs> bill happened? it was it was in North Carolina, right uh, the all-star game, right? right? And they threatened to, oh, the to to pull the all-star game that is so yeah, cool. yeah, and so they ended up delaying it, right? Adam as the commissioner was like, hey, we don't stand for this, but i've I've oftentimes thought. As artists, do we just bring the work there, do we, ch- do we try to change the culture there from, because I know there's people on the ground that would like want us to be there. That would be like, I would love for Alana Glazer to be there, I would love for Hasan Minaj to come shoot his show there. It would, you know what I mean? It could be like a
0: lightning rod moment. So as you sit here today, like, yeah. you know, I mean, you've just been on tour, you're still kind of on tour. Yeah, I mean, we
2: have the, our last few dates, we're closing it out now. You yeah. started when? September.
0: September, how many dates have you done? Ish? A
2: hundred plus. 100
0: and a plus. lot of shows all over the country, right? Yes. So, you know, have you resolved your? Because there you're ambivalent. You're kind of yeah. like, I can see the argument in either direction. Sure. And then you didn't come to conclusion. As you yes. sit here today, in the wake of the repeal of Roe v. Wade, if there's some city, some, there will be states, a lot of them, if it's fully repealed, that will be like full abortion ban. Like, do you take the next tour there or right.
2: not? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, somebody who shaped my perspective on this, and I always turn to people who have more wisdom and and lived experience than me. I was talking to Trevor Noah about this, mm-hmm. and Trevor was the one who expanded my worldview on this. Funny enough, outside of domestic politics, the question I had for him is, should I go perform in the Middle East? It's a thing I talk about in The King's Jester, but also on Patriot Act. Yeah. Made fun of, you know, Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince.
0: Say more say like, more than made fun of. Yeah. Poured, poured, poured <laughs> scathing hot battery acid on. Sure, you, so. sure.
2: Yeah. And one of the things I was asking him is, You know, the crown prince through this thing called Vision 2030 is really trying to bring a lot of artists to the Middle East, specifically Saudi Arabia and Riyadh to perform. Swiss beats, musical artists, hip hop artists, comedians, they are really trying to change the face in their image around the world. I go, Trevor, what should I do? And he, you know, he presented an interesting question and he said, well, to what extent is your performance a reflection and an endorsement of the government? And to what extent is your performance a desire to connect to the civilian population that don't get to choose the rules and the the sort of the society, the current society that they live in? And this becomes a very complicated question. Do I perform in China? I want to perform in China. But as a Muslim, do I do that, knowing that there's over 2 million Uyghur Muslims that are just currently in re-education camps, as we like to call them? It's It's a super complicated question. And that's what I was presenting to Alana. I don't have a, I mean, I don't know. It's yeah. so tricky. Yeah. Because there's, again, lightning rod moments where someone like Adam Silver tells Charlotte, hey, we're not going to do the All-Star game right. here if you keep doing this. Well, this I- is a reflection on the state and the state leadership. Yeah. Or you could also say, are you punishing the fans? Are you punishing the people of Charlotte? Yeah. Right? It's, it's really complicated. I
0: mean, you know, Trevor makes me think about it, although other things would too. But this was the debate, you know, in South Africa pre the fall of apartheid, which yeah. was a lot of people would not played *Sun City* for a long time. Yeah. Musical acts wouldn't played *Sun City*, and, yeah. and finally there was you know Little Steven and a bunch of people said this is not helping this government to fall. We want to help this government to fall, and the only way to do that is to not have any kind of constructive engagement. Cut like be part of an economic boycott, bring yes. the government down, yes. and that in fact is part of what happened. Yes. So it's like I don't know that there's any perfect precedent that you would say, you know, this is the, this is the exact exactly. this is the thing. I mean, a systematized. I mean. I can't think of anything maybe more blatant than the system of apartheid in South Africa and and trying to bring that whole slave nation where the majority are are enslaved by the white minority. That's that's a wild fucking thing. So you can make an argument that's so extreme. And I think the
2: mistake that gets made sometimes, whether it's apartheid or there's also been a boycott with performing in Tel Aviv and Israel. And believe it or not, there were particular boycotts and conversations. I mean, already you can tell these are apples and oranges. If you go from South Africa to Tel Aviv and Israel to... Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, early in September, in the early parts of my tour, there was even discussions in regards to not performing in states that will not have mask mandates, Yeah, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. also was on the table and artists were having conversations kind of via iMessage and WhatsApp of like, should we do it, should we not? I mean, but you can see in each of these four buckets that I just mentioned, right. the circumstances are different. so unique yeah. sure. and different and you sure. can't say they're the same in all of them, but it's really interesting to see how things will unfold. What's happening right now, specifically with abortion, is so reprehensible in terms of civil liberties and civil rights. I'm really interested to see how this unfolds, yeah. you know? And whatever pressure that can be applied, I think those options are worth considering and weighing out.
0: Did you just, because you raised it, did the questions around masking and policy or I'm that have any effect on where you ended up going on the tour?
2: Yeah. So you'll notice there were certain places where if they did not have a mask mandate. Yeah. And again, I'm very privileged and lucky that I have the leverage to do this sure. because I was able to hold sold out shows over the promoter's head. If you don't have a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate, I just won't perform until you do. So we were able to get certain states like South Carolina and Florida to play ball. And so that to me is an example of a small amount of pressure in regards to a public health and safety issue. But after I saw some of the early tours that were going out before me, folks were getting COVID, artists were getting COVID, some people in the crowd were. In that early fall run, I definitely leveraged that as much as I possibly
0: could. I want to ask you one more thing that's sort of topical before I do a little deeper dive here. Sure. But, but it, it goes again to this thing of like how there's an overarching theme here, like how you've evolved as a person in the world. And, uh-huh. and when I think about the abortion thing, another way in which an unusual thing happened to you because of your engagement with a public issue was on the student debt thing. So I want to play the, the Patriot Act piece from that, a little sure. chunk of that, and then what happened because of it. And then we'll okay. talk about that.
2: Student loan debt. It affects pretty much everyone I know. And if you're one of the ten people it doesn't affect, (laughs) congratulations on being a Kennedy. (laughs) Student loans are crippling millions of people, many of them fresh out of college. Imagine starting a race, and then the guy with the starter pistol uses the gun to shoot you in the leg. (laughs) The student debt crisis is so big, There's even a game show to help people with their loans. Welcome to Paid Off. This is a game
0: show dedicated to helping you pay off your student loans. For each correct answer, we'll pay you a percentage of your debt. If you get eight correct, we'll pay the whole amount. This is a real show.
2: (laughs) They turned a national crisis into a game show. I can't wait to see how Howie Mandel solves the opioid epidemic. (laughs)
0: The
2: best part of Paid Off is the tagline.
0: I know it's not everything, but I hope that helps take off the pressure for a little bit. I know it's not everything pressure off for a little bit. That's not a tagline. That's what a plastic
2: surgeon says to someone after a chimp attack. I know it's not everything, but I hope it helps take off the pressure for a little bit. Now get out there and start dating, Scarface. Wow. Shout out to the archival team. That's a great SOT to open with.
0: I mean, we have young people here all who have a lot of student ed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta play that one. Uh I can think of things that you did in Patriot Act that were more controversial. And we'll talk about Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia. that's one example. And you talk about it in King's Jester, the ramifications and the calculuses in doing the news industry thing with Alden Capital. Yeah. Was there anything that had more of a resonance among your audience than that? No, this was probably
2: the deepest. Right. I would say the deepest resonating in terms of again, scale, like the sheer number of people that I know in my life and specifically for my generation that are just hobbled by that.
0: Yeah. And so like, what did that look like? What did the residents look like? Like the social media reaction, people coming up to you on the street? Yeah. How do you know on a show
2: like that when something like that really breaks through? You can kind of feel, and, and you know this when you're walking around New York, just the way, especially when you work in media and the type of show, whether it's Daily Show, Patriot Act, SNL, You can tell when something really penetrated. People would just grab me in the street and go, fuck Navient. And I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, income-based repayment plan. I'm like, I'm telling you, yes, don't defer your payments. It's stuff like that where people, social media, but also coming up to you just being like, hey, thank you for doing that.
0: Could you identify with that? You had a
2: lot of student debt? I I lucked out. So I didn't because I went to UC Davis. So I went to a local school and I I lived at home, funny enough. So I was able, I didn't have crippling student loan debt, but I had crippling emotional debt. (laughs) <laughs> that being said, that being said, yeah. I have so many friends—my sister, my right. brother-in-law—that sure. it's just like it's sure. it's, it's, it's it, Yeah, it's, it's financial everywhere. HPV. Everybody kind of has it, and yeah. nobody's really talking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's,
0: that's pretty good. Yeah, okay, that's, that's the abuse though. <laughs>
2: no, that's no, awesome. I just kind of just okay. thought of it right now. But
0: okay, so then you get called to Congress. Yes, and I, I want to show that just because again, not that many comedians get to go, sure, go to Apple, talk, yeah. and get Sure, testify. So let's play that. Right. right. My Very name cute. is Hassan Minhaj. I'm a Muslim,
2: and I condemn radical Islamic terrorism. That has nothing to do with anything. I just want that on the record. (laughs) It's good to get ahead of these things. Now, Chairwoman Waters invited me here today because I host a political comedy show on Netflix called Patriot Act, which means I may owe some of you guys royalties. Just DM. We can talk later. Now, we recently did an episode on the student loan crisis, and it really hit home with our audience, because 44 million Americans owe more than $1.6 trillion of student loan debt. In fact, the day we shot our episode, we polled our studio audience. It was only about 200 people. In that room alone had over $6 million of student loan debt. Now, granted, our audience is mainly unemployed poli-sci majors, but that's still a lot of money.
0: Tough room. Very tough room. Tough I was. Room. I bombed so bad. It was really. I mean, really rough. I gotta say, like, yeah. I watched the whole thing, and you made powerful points on the policy issues. Yeah. The comedy, but didn't, the jokes were airballs. I, I yeah. gotta say, if you would called someone who would <laughs> spent a many amount of time in congressional hearings, I would have been like, uh, "Don't do the uh-huh. so house. <laughs> like they're not gonna get the last that you think you're gonna get laughs." Yeah. People's like, "What's well, he? Is he real? Six million? Really? It's six million? Uh,
2: yeah." What was that experience like? You know what's funny? So. Maybe it's the comic in me. There is something very titillating about doing that, about airballing. Yes. As a comedian committing to the bit and going there and not breaking, that actually was the test for me of like, hey, can you do the whole testimony without breaking? And that is very funny to me. Right. I mean, when you watch a huge, you know, inspiring performance for me was Colbert's, I believe it was the 2004 White House Correspondents Dinner. Speech. But yes. he just commits. Yes. The full yes. set. Yes. You know, and I remember talking to Steven for advice before I hosted in 2017. And yeah, he was just like, commit. You're not yeah. playing to the room. Yeah. Right. You're playing to everybody at yes, home. Right. And so, right. you know, right. I realized, okay, eventually someone's gonna clip this out from C SPAN three and right. put it. On YouTube, on YouTube people will laugh. Yeah, and, and, it, will, yeah. and, it, and it will resonate. Yeah. Bo- the satire and the sincerity of it will both
0: resonate. It's hard to put in the, the room. room. It's, hard in hard the room to it's in the room. Tough. And, yeah. and I can't help but think that, like, I mean, I've done enough public speeches where I have my, my little tiny attempts at humor. Yeah. And, like, when people don't laugh at the first one, I'm like self editing as I go through. I'm like, I'm not going to make that joke and that joke and sure. that joke because they're not going to get it. Sure. Still, like Your instinct is maybe I should start to change. But no, you're like, no, I th- fuck it, I got to stay I on this- think,
2: I think I've been, you know, I'm lucky enough to do it. I've been doing comedy long enough where I'm still a Padawan, but I've gotten to see the Jedis up close. And the best comics, this is a weird thing, the comics that I love the most truly do not give a fuck. Like, they really don't care. And my buddy Prashanth, who's the director of The King's Jester, tells me this all the time. Sometimes when he goes, you're talking too fast, he'll give me this note during performances. Let them come to you. You don't have to impart your will on them let them come to you and the longer you sit in it they will come to you so even later when during the question and answer session the little Uzi Vert references and all those things like I was very clear to go no I'm going to stay the course and stay in character and not not capitulate not fold
0: let them come to you you just said a thing that I had to I get comics you love the most yeah who are the comics you love the most (sighs) I mean, this is just the yeah. all time. If you put it on the table, I'm going to go there. Yeah. It's a terrible question to ask. I yeah, mean, yeah. like, there's a reason why the words "my favorite albums" never come out of my mouth because as soon as you say they like, oh, sure. go, "What are your favorite albums?" I'm like, sure. oh, "Fuck it, I can't." That so question.
2: I'll tell them in terms of superpowers. Yeah, Richard Pryor for his vulnerability.
0: Okay.
2: Chris Rock for his argumentation.
0: Yeah.
2: Cat Williams for his physicality and freedom and performance. Michelle Wolf for her joke structure. Mike Berbiglia for his timing, pacing, and how tight he puts his storytelling, the basket weave. Yeah. Chappelle for his candor. And Jon Stewart for his decency. Those are my favorites. Okay. That's, that have had the biggest impact on,
0: on me. So that's something that even if you've never made that list exactly like that, you've thought about that,
2: though. I'm a yes. huge basketball fan, and, and one of the things I think about all the time is it's, my favorite players have the most amount of tools in their Batman utility belt. Right. One of my favorite players to watch right now, he's not playing in the playoffs, was Kyrie. But if you look at Kyrie, speed, handling, body control, ability to hit shots in the paint, he's like an NBA 2K player. Like circle, circle, spin, spin, X, 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 R1, R2. Like he's that. He has the most amount of tricks I've seen in his bag. Luca right now has an incredible amount of tricks in his bag. And so when I think about comedy that way, I'm like, what are the different tools that I would want to have in my bag.
0: Apparently, like, there's, uh, not that we don't know this about athletes, but in Kyrie's case, all those things you just said are true, and then you're like, and how is it that someone has all those tools? The one is the brain power to, like, <laughs> sure, just go sure. get a fucking sure. shot, dude. Yes. Don't, don't fucking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You know, anyway. yeah. um, you know who I was thinking about the other day, and then I'm going to talk about your whole comedy thing, but because sure. of Judd and the movie coming out, his Carlin movie. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Carlin, you know, for my generation, sure, it's just, like, it's not, I'm not a student of comedy the way you are. Like, you think about this stuff in a very, like, you know, that's a yeah, very yeah. that's a very rigorous, deep way. I guess it's your thing. It's your course, Of course, yeah. of course yeah. you think about it that way. I'm yeah. not surprised that, that that's the case. But a lot of us love comedy and don't think about it quite that way. Yeah. And the thing about watching the trailer, I haven't watched, they sent me the link. I've watched the movie yet. I will, maybe yeah. tonight. But watching the trailer where Colbert says he was the Beatles of comedy. And, like, it reminds me of how just big he was. And, you know, he was a political comic in a way. He did other stuff that wasn't political, but there was a pervasiveness to... Carlin was everywhere in the sense that, like, everybody I know could yeah. say, shit, piss, butt, concox, our brother, worker tits. Like that, wow. like they knew it and their wow. parents would get mad at them. But everybody could do it yeah. because he was the atmosphere at that point. Supreme Court case. He was like a cultural, like, you can't almost be that anymore. Yeah. There's no one like that anymore that's that kind of much... I mean, it may, That's maybe. That's so singular
2: and stretching. Well, it just is. It just because of the way.
0: combination of where they intersect with, like, you know, his skills as a comic, the choice of topic, and yeah. then it getting elevated in a way where, like, the Supreme Court and all of the entire media and entertainment industry is waiting for the verdict. It's like. I don't know. And in a culture that's more of a monoculture back then when stuff like that was on, you know, you couldn't avoid it. You couldn't get away with it. You couldn't go hide in your little bubble where you weren't, your little gamer bubble where I don't care what's going on out
2: there. I don't
0: know. I guess Chappelle's sort of
2: like that now. You know, believe it or not, I just think there's a lot of people doing a lot of important things and it's interesting. During that period of time, you look at Carlin Pryor, Cosby, Joan Rivers, there's probably maybe 10 comedians that are pushing culture that way. If you look at the number of comedians that are touring at that level now, yeah. it's 20, 30, 40. Tom Segura, Nate Bargatze. I can list you so many names. Yeah. Burt Kreischer, guys that are doing arenas that you may have not heard of yeah. or that a lot of people have heard of. Yeah. But yeah, we don't live in a monoculture anymore, but there are a lot of comedians, I think, stretching the genre in very unique, interesting ways. Bo Burnham is an, ex- an example of right. someone yes. who's stretching it in a totally. certain way. Yeah. Alana Glazer, There's. A, I can name so many different comics that are stretching culture in their own unique way. So that's what I'm right. most interested yeah. in. Yeah,
0: and I agree with what you just said. I think it's almost like it, it highlights the way in which my observation is it's more about the world we live in now more yeah. than about them. It's not like I'm saying there aren't people who are as good as Carlin now. That's yeah. not my point. My point yeah. is to like- That have way, that level of
2: attention and yeah, focus. You, you, and, nobody
0: can. It's like why, you know- uh, don't you feel that way with your industry I mean you sure. grew up Dan
2: Rather sure
0: there was three like, no right? one gi- no Tom gi- Brokaw no off. one gives a shit who's the anchor of the network evening news anymore Yeah, with all due respect to whoever those people are sure, right. sure. I can't even name the CBS sure. evening news anchor right now this is Nora O'Donnell no, yeah. no disrespect to Nora but yeah. it's like we don't live in that culture anymore. Yeah. There used to be rock bands yeah. who when the summer came, they would make a record that you would hear playing out of every right. car in Times Square with the window rolled down. Right. That doesn't happen anymore. It's right. like it's all the whole culture's been shattered. It's a million little pieces around your feet. And it's yeah. like harder to move the culture. Yes. Not impossible, but harder to move the culture in a way that yes. you could back in the early 70s or late 60s, whatever yes. that was. When you think about what you're doing, right. do you think I'm trying to tell jokes? I'm trying to tell stories. I'm trying to tell stories and jokes or I'm trying to move the culture. Does that even crush your mind or does that seem like totally, like I would never be quite that presumptuous to think I could move the
2: culture? Yeah, I think for me, it's just how far can I stretch myself yeah. and how far can I push myself as a creative person and hopefully the genre just a little bit. And it's funny, I talk about this in King's Jester. If I try to play the fame and clout game, like yeah. that's a losing battle. That's a losing battle. And I think as some, someone like yourself, through the work that you've done with the Showtime series, when you cover the, quite literally, the circus show of politics and politicians that are cult of personality, yeah. to me, the professional wrestling aspect of that is very dangerous. I, yeah. I don't want to be, and it's, it's consumed me at times, and I don't want to play that game. Yeah. It is a losing battle.
0: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Hassan Minaj on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to hell and I water. So I'll I'll play another old thing of yours. It's not as old as the thing we played before this thing talking about being Muslim in America from the laugh factory, I think around 2013 or so, play this and and then we can talk about, about why you decided to start doing this in the first place.
2: I'm Muslim. Thank you. And, uh, I love board games. And I think the hardest thing about being Muslim is not being able to play Jenga on 9/11. You know what I mean? Because the last thing I can do is just cheer as buildings so, Jenga. I look like a now. Some of you guys aren't laughing at that joke, and that's because you're wrong. Because I love my country. I love it! That's why every Thursday, every Thursday, I wear a God Bless America shirt because it's made in Pakistan. Now, our lives are inherently different, okay? There's certain things that you guys can enjoy, white people, that I can't, like going to the beach and running through sand castles. I can't do that. It'll be like, Daddy, brown men destroyed our buildings. Never forget, that's my life forever. Do you get it? I'm So the next time you're just like, oh, it takes me three days to get my Netflix. Really? I can't buy sugar and envelopes at the same time. Do you get it? I need to slow down. You're fast though. Yeah. I'm just like.
0: But you're young. It's okay. Yeah.
2: I'm just.
0: I mean, these are early bits. Early early bits. When did you say to yourself, I want to do comedy and why?
2: Yeah. I was a speech and debate kid. Yes. I knew
0: so, that, right? I, yeah. I was a yeah. fucking dork. Yeah. And fast. Were you a one or a two? I was <laughs> I was very
2: fast. My event was impromptu. I don't know uh-huh. if you did impromptu. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I'm with that Yeah, yeah name, so I'm, I was a,
0: you know. Another generation, I was senior at Redlands, my son. He yeah. I'm from L.A., the same debate camp.
2: Yep, we would have seen each other at state qualifiers and the whole thing. Look, I was just a troublemaker in class, and I was, funny enough, I was in computer class, and my teacher, Miss Takeuchi- would just catch me, I was just being a smartass. I was in the back of class, yeah. making quips, shooting spitballs, just being a goof. And she kept giving me detention, and she said, if I can get you to be quiet, I won't give you detention, but you got to join this thing called forensics, public speaking. Right. And so I started competing in that, and then public speaking with Academic Decathlon, and that was my kind of, my high. Yeah. I realized that being irreverent, pushing the boundaries of what is socially acceptable to say, i.e. that Jenga joke would sometimes get a reaction. And that reaction gave me a sense of control yeah. in a way that I, in a lot of different ways in my life, I felt like I didn't have control. Yeah. And comedy and discovering comedy in college was this feeling of, for the first time in my life, I feel a sense of control. Because there's so many times in my life, I just did not feel control. What were
0: the factors in not feeling control? like normal adolescent, like I'm just like, you know, insecure or race or how all you're raised it. or what? Yeah, like, what? I, think,
2: I think all of it. I yeah. think it was all, a lot of the adolescent angst and, hey, I don't get a say in my life, yeah. you know, overbearing immigrant parents that want you to fit in a certain box and be a certain way. The lack of control over your own emotions and feelings. These things aren't making sense. And I wish I had an outlet to express them. I came of age in, in post 9-11 Bush America. So You know, my dad was very involved at the mosque. I'd have to go to the mosque as a kid. And just, I grew up in the era of the Patriot Act. And that became, you know, I tell my kind of Batman origin story and the King's Jester. But being irreverent, poking fun at those things, being like, this doesn't make sense. In a weird way, that kind of naive troll energy gave me a a sense of control and agency of my life. I would come to find out later in life, you can take that too far, but it is something that, I deeply feel it it was that moment that I want to chase this for the rest of my life. That feeling that I had just it was just like this moment where I the matrix everything all the binary code lines up in that moment yeah when I can crack a joke and I can get people to laugh, I can feel it I can just. It's the few times in my life I feel like everything makes sense.
0: And was there a particular moment? As you said, you were discovering comedy in college. Was there a particular moment, a particular performance? Or was it a kind of a, a thing, an accretion a, a of, of different moments where you're like, okay, this could actually be my life, not just this is a satisfying thing that gives me that sense of all of those things you just said, yeah. those psychological payoffs. But you are like, this could be a career. I could go and do this. This is what I want to do. It's a singular passion. Was there a, a real watershed moment for that?
2: Yeah. There's a story that I have in The King's Jester where I talk about when I was in high school and college, it was very popular in California specifically, and this became a Supreme Court case, where FBI agents would start hanging out at the mosque, and they would hang out with young teenagers. Yeah. And funny enough, there was a This American Life about this, but there'd be these feds that were <laughs> Italian dudes who tanned or like Hispanic dudes who would just all of a sudden try to hang out with like young brown kids in basketball shorts and be yeah. like, hey, let's work out, let's, yeah. let's hang out. And, <laughs> and I remember... I was very popular amongst my friends because I would just point out these narcs and we would kind of troll them and make fun of them. And I tell a story about how making fun of them and landing those jokes made me feel powerful in a time that I didn't feel powerful. When I was in college, more specifically in the stand-up community, San Francisco had a burgeoning, booming stand-up comedy scene. And it it has had a a booming scene for a very long time. Some of my favorite comics came up in the 80s there. Margaret Cho, Robin Williams. It had a very booming scene in the 80s, but in the early 2000s, it had another booming scene where people like W. Kamau Bell, Arch Barker, Ali Wong, Moshe Kasher, and Brent Weinbach were doing just like incredible work, pushing again, stretching the genre of comedy. All five of those comedians that I listed were very different stylistically too. And what I loved about the San Francisco comedy scene at that time is that San Francisco as a city embraced all of that. It's why it's one of my favorite comedy cities in the country. A watershed moment for me was around 2008. There was a competition put together by the radio station, Wild 94.9. I don't know if anyone is familiar with that radio station, but they have a thing called Best Comic Standing, and I won that. And I had to kind of compete against all my older brothers and sisters that I looked up to. And I was able to win that. And that was a moment for me a few years in. I was about four years in at the time that made me go, Maybe I could actually really do this
0: yeah. outside <laughs> of my day job at office, Max. Like, sure. <laughs> really do this for the rest of my life. I mean, it's interesting. Just like, I obviously have not seen everything you've ever done. Yeah. Whatever uh, claims you have. And, sure, sure. But it does seem like everything from the very, and you said this thing about how I came of in the Patriot Act era. Yeah. It seems like that politics with a small P and identity. Yeah. That those are like. Cornerstones of your work from the very beginning. There was never a that time that I didn't know. There yeah. was never a time where you would knock knock jokes or the equivalent of grown up knock knock. It was like, oh, let's just get up. There is a joke I can tell here that's not rooted in my autobiography and my autobiography being part of a class of the other. Yeah. Targeted sure. and the politics of that era. The power was partly about pushing back against what that power was doing to someone who was not a white person and someone who was living in that era. Is yeah. that right? I
2: think one of the defining things, and I didn't realize this until recently, but it was constantly feeling like I was wearing an away jersey. Right. Everybody around me is wearing a home jersey. I think I should be wearing a home jersey, but I feel like I'm wearing an away right. jersey. Yeah. And this is just kind of my analysis of the world as I wear this away jersey. For whatever reason, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, right. but that was kind of the lens through which I saw the world. And I, I didn't realize that you're playing these old clips, I don't know how you found them, but I didn't realize, I didn't see that connective tissue, but I do know that from the moment I started doing open mics, I really was seeking that feeling of control and understanding, understanding why I believed the things I believed. And comedy was a way for me to do that. make sense
0: of the human condition. You know, Hassan, if it wasn't for the Bush administration, we might not have you. <laughs> I mean, not as we currently know and love you. I mean, that's another thing that George W. Bush can take credit for. One of the few, I guess. So let's do one more from that period. There's a piece here that you talk about uh, related to a a widely publicized shooting at the time back in 2012 at a Sikh temple. This is not just good comedy, but also crazy prescient about uh, a whole bunch of things. So let's play it. Nearly a decade after 9-11, the biggest threat to our
2: own domestic security and safety is homegrown domestic terrorism. Arizona, Aurora, Wisconsin. I don't want to talk about what race these people are. But it ain't brown dudes with beards and turbans. So the next time you want to pat me down at the airport for carrying contact lens solution, why don't you pat down Larry the Cable guy with the NRA shirt and the deer hat?
0: Wow. So that's from the truth, right? That yeah, from the web just, series a, you just did. a web series. Yeah. But I think the date on that is, you said 2012. You're making yeah, that by 2012? 2012. Yeah. 2012. That's 10 years ago. And nine years before the insurrection. Hearing FBI Director Chris Wray say, as he has over the course of the last few years repeatedly, that the greatest threat to American political and domestic stability is not foreign terrorists, but is domestic terrorists, particularly white extremists. That's like, I'm not trying to say you were like a soothsayer or something. You were just reading the writing on the wall, but that was not a common trope in comedy yeah. or in political commentary yeah. in 2012, sure. we didn't have that kind of conversation. Sure. So I'm curious even where that came from.
2: So I have a deep respect for the Sikh community growing up in Northern California, the forgotten part of Cali, by the way. I just want to say that. A lot of people shit on us. I grew up in Davis, which is right by Sacramento.
0: I myself have shit on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. on Davis, on Davis. Yeah. Not, not yeah. i, mean, I was Los Angelino. We shit on Davis routinely. Yeah. And the San Franciscans shit on Davis too. Every, yeah. Yeah. San Diego shit it. on Davis. We, we get
2: shit. it. Yeah, we get it from all sides. Okay. But- Further up north the Five, there's a city called Yuba City, and they have a huge Sikh community. And I grew up in that area, growing up around Sikh Americans. And the Sikh community, those uncles, aunties, and their kids, they're some of the oldest American citizens from the Desi diaspora. They arrived even before my parents came. My parents came in 82. Yeah. so. One of the things that I, I feel a strong kinship for their community for two reasons is mm-hmm. first of all, after 9-11, a lot of Sikh people were targeted because they were assumed to be Muslim and they never threw us under the bus. So I tip my hat to them yeah. and I did a field piece about them on The Daily Show and I said this satirically, joking, not joking. I would have thrown you guys under the bus <laughs> in a heartbeat. Like how could you guys do this for us? Yeah. And they said, it's part of our Sikh values. They're such a small minority community in India and in the country. So when that Sikh temple shooting happened, I just felt like I had to say something about it. And I think another thing, again, and it just comes from my personal experience, was I felt that through my lived experience. So I wanted to kind of put that on wax. Again, and it's so wild that you you play that clip. The director of that clip is Aristotle Athari, who is now a cast member of SNL. And he is, you know, one of the few Middle Eastern cast members on SNL and the cast it's wild that I didn't know this at the time. Now you're putting this together. It's wild. I mean, kudos to all of you for putting that together. But the people that I was also, happened to be my, my contemporaries in comedy at that time pushed me and inspired me to do work like that.
0: Well, I will say also, though, I mean, earlier, this, the hoodie was kind of okay. Like, whatever the fuck it is you're wearing on the street mm-hmm. is that weird silk red bathrobe? Yeah. I mean, that thing was not the right That way. wasn't the right move.
2: That so, being said, we had to shoot that in my apartment building. And the, you know how, like, certain, like, fancy apartment buildings will be like, we have a communal library. Yeah. So I remember we saw it in <laughs> the, the, the apartment building. is called the Visconti, which is on 3rd and Pixel in downtown LA. It's this kind of, like, fake Venetian apartment building where USC kids, like, sell weed. But I thought it was really nice. And so, yeah, (laughs) it was – Ari and I thought, okay, like, dress up in this, like, regal smoking jacket. I don't think it translates, but – Hopefully, the joke's still It's one of those but. things
0: where like, you think back, you know, for a child of the internet, yeah. you would have thought, like, maybe this will live on longer than I wanted to. You know, there's a dankness to it that I appreciate, yes. though, well, that I'm like, yeah. Yeah, You know, there's sometimes you go that far, and it's like, okay. Yeah, it's,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's like committing to the bit. Um, yeah. By the way, you know what's so sad when I look at these jokes and bits? Yeah. How, like, I appreciate the soul of what I'm saying, but I still cringe a little bit. Yeah. But then I think about someone like Nas who made like Ilmatic when he was nineteen and you can still play Ilmatic now. I don't have an Ilmatic. Like all my stuff is very kind of well, there's seeds in it, but there's like a, a lot of naivete and weird fashion choices.
0: I don't know anything about classical music, but there's people who do always like, well, you know, Beethoven wrote this, that's all these, those fucking kids. Van Morrison made Astral Weeks at like the age of 19 or 20. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, it's like, it's like yeah. God speaking through his uh, How was his everything all well, so perfect? At
2: that point. Art design, set design, costume design, voice, like take. Yes. Again, yes. I'm, I'm speaking as a comedian yes. and maybe it's apples and oranges, yes. but I'm like, how did you
0: have all of that just figured out? In passing, I'll say this. I haven't watched the second half of Ozark yet, but yeah. there's an entire episode built around Elmatic. They made one of the last episodes really? they made where they made the entire oh, thing around wow, Elmatic, where they, the, the album is the only music on the album. The yeah, I yeah. read about it the other day. I was like, fuck, I gotta watch that. Yeah, but yeah. there's a fucking record that stands the test of time. They're making premium scripted drama, I really <laughs> high quality around that's your like, fucking record. You'd be you'd be like,
2: like, you think this show's good? Yeah. You know what's really fucking good? <laughs> <laughs> Nas's She's 1993 hit album, Elmatic. Yes. Yeah.
0: All right, so I want to play. Here's a thing that's not you. It's 2014. Sure. October, November 2014, you're getting called in to go to your uh, audition for The Daily Show. And this becomes a controversial thing that then becomes an important part of how you got your job at The Daily Show. Here's uh, Ben Affleck, Bill Maher, and Sam Harris on real time in October 2014 talking about Islamophobia. Oh, right, yeah. You're saying that Islamophobia is not a real thing. That if you're critical of something... Well, it's not a real thing when we do it. Right. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, no, no, it really isn't. I'm not denying
2: that that certain people are bigoted against Muslims as people, and that's a problem. big of you.
0: But... The, but why are you we so have hostile to, about this? It's, it's gross. It's racist. It's, it's not. It's, but it's so it's nice. So, it's like saying it's those so you're shifty Jew. You're not listening Absolutely to not. what but, we are saying. You guys are saying, but, if you want to be liberals, believe in liberal principles right. like freedom of speech. Like, right. um, you know, we are endowed by our uh, forefathers with an alienable aspect. Like all men are created equal. No, evil.
2: Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. And of course we Islam, do. No liberal doesn't okay, want you to okay. criticize bad but ideas. Islam but Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have. That's just a like it's It no. is an ugly apostasy. thing Apostasy. How about the more then, than a billion those, people those who aren't, those aren't those fanatical, too. who don't punch well, women, but think, who but just want to go to the store and sandwiches a, a day? Great. 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 don't a second. say any of the things, that you're saying all okay, Muslims. Wait a
0: second. No, Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a
2: yeah, this is uh, surreal, man. So, so there's, a this lot, surreal. there's a lot yeah. of
0: crosstalk there. And, and I'll say something now I never thought I would say ever yeah. in my life, and I will probably never say again. I want to just read the words of Ben Affleck so everyone can hear them. Sure. Because really, what he's talking about is like painting with a broad brush. He says, how about the more than a billion people who aren't fanatical, who don't punch women, who want to go to school and have some sandwiches at the end of the day and don't do any things you're saying yeah. about all Muslims? Like... Ben Affleck, I'm like, I'm 100%, 100% right, you know? Yeah. But this became a thing. This was a viral thing. People talked about it. It was yeah. a controversy. And you basically did an audition. Yeah. You changed what you were planning to do as your audition totally. to do a thing based on that. It was Talk such about a, that. It was such
2: a seminal moment for a couple reasons. Well, first of all, I had to go in and screen test very quickly. And one of the things that I had to think about was, what can I add to the show? You know, there were so many great correspondents on the show already at the time. John Oliver had just left. Michael Che had just left. You have Jordan Clapper, Jessica Williams, Samantha B, Jason Jones, what can I add to the show? Yeah. And it was one of those things where I felt I could add this perspective. This was incredibly prescient and kind of jaw-dropping. I don't think I can put words on how important this was for us as a community. Y- you know, we don't have a lot of people speaking out for us. So <laughs> for Ben Affleck, you know, Batman. Albeit his performance wasn't great in Batman v Superman, but Batman to be like, hey, I spent time around a ton of Muslims when I was directing Argo. Yeah. And I'm telling you, the way you're describing them, this very like niche, extremist, boogeyman, like they all dress like ninjas and they live in the desert and this kind of like, they're all like ISIS. For him to be like, yeah, they're just regular people And I've spent time with them. Why don't you convey what 99.99% of them are like is dangerous. You're creating this very broad brush that you're painting them with. That Batman versus Bill Maher moment was like, yeah, I need to talk about this. And it kind of – my comedy take was, yeah, like we tend to be dorks. We're not dangerous. We're studying for the DAT. Not, you know, we're not going to destroy buildings and stuff like that. And that was – it was just a very powerful moment. I couldn't believe what I was watching, as yeah. sad as that is to say. Yeah. I hadn't seen a prominent A-list celebrity kind of speak out on our behalf. It was very powerful and meaningful to me.
0: You got there. You did four years at The Daily Show, yeah. right? And, and most of it with Trevor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it you know, was an important thing in your evolution as an artist and in your career. Just watching you at the end when you did your farewells, I obviously had a fucking great time yeah, doing yeah. it. But yeah. just talk about I mean, The Daily Show by that point. Was it obviously a huge institution? Yes. But John was leaving, and and there was a lot of questions, as there always is, when a new host comes in about Trevor. What was it like to be in that space, and what do you think you learned there, and what did it do for you?
2: Yeah. I think the John years that I was there, I get there, and it's kind of his Chicago Bulls last dance moment. (laughs) And it was the John Voyage year, but getting to see him up close, I got to see him do Act 1's. And I really got to see his greatness as a comedian. And one of the things I think that is a testament to a great comedian or satirist is when you are able to provide moral clarity in times of social panic. So when the Sandy Hook shooting happened, when all of these really horrible, horrific events happen, generally we turn to the daily or nightly satirist show to see who has the best take or kind of moment of clarity. I got to see John do that several times, and that was just, yeah, I'm seeing magic. I'm seeing greatness in action. Yeah. Nobody can plan that. Nobody can plan. And I saw him do some things where they didn't even load it up in the prompter. They would load up parts of it, yeah. but his ability to stitch it all together was pretty incredible. The second thing that I saw that I think is missing and I still long for deeply is that he is a good faith actor. Yeah. And if you work in media long enough there's not a lot of good faith actors. There's a lot of, unfortunately, sociopathic, sycophantic, clickbait type actors that are out here grifting. Yeah. And, and they're here for the quote tweets and the dunks and the retweets. John wasn't that. He kind of showed me a decent path forward. Yeah. And I could have studied under a person who had a very different MO. I'm really lucky that he came to me at a period of time yeah. in my life I'm 30 years old, I'm just getting married. Like He really shaped how I wanna carry myself in show business. The Trevor years, what Trevor taught me, he is such an incredible talent. I don't think a lot of people give him credit because they see the dimples and how handsome he is and they don't know how talented he is. His perspective, his voice, his impressions, there's things that he has that I think the Daily Show and the landscape needed. I know you chatted with Larry Wilmore, Larry is is also one of those guys. We need people like that in this space. And for the longest time, you know, we were operating a space with two Jimmys, a Steve and a John. There were no Trevors. Yeah. And we need that. And I think America needed that and needs that.
0: I'm psyched to see him. Like, it's finally, it's, it, you know, that it was a rough. Rough. But, I mean, I just popular always popular. Talk, the hard, follow John Stewart. Like, it's like, really rough. I mean, it's awesome when you follow someone who sucks. It's yeah. Terrible. Like, he's a fucking, you know, yeah. a, a de- yeah, with, a
2: deity. With, with Killborn, it was, you know, when John took that over, it was a, a middling show. Yeah. It was a middling show on Comedy yeah, Central. Yeah. But I remember there was this photo campaign that Comedy Central used. I'll never forget this. They didn't end up using it, but it was just so telling of what Trevor would have to go through. It was him in the suit. He's standing in the studio, and he's wearing gigantic shoes. And that's it. He's got huge shoes to fill. Oh, my God, And that was the defining thing that Trevor had to go through. Yeah. And what Trevor, what I got to witness up close is he could have turned that office upside down, and he didn't the media was ripping him. The opinion columns were ripping him. And I'll be honest, I had private conversations with my wife, Bina. I was like, Hey, I don't think we're going to be able to renew the lease. Right. We had just gotten married. And I was like, there's a pretty good chance that he cleans house or after these reviews come in, he's just like, I got to shake things up. Right. Who wouldn't? And he didn't. And he stayed the course and he let me Roy Wood Jr. Klepper, Ronnie Chang, Jessica Williams really grow and, and become who we were going to become, and he never stopped me from becoming who I wanted to become, and I owe him a lot.
0: Well, that's part of why it's great to see he's finally like it's happened now. Sort of, he like, the yes. corner got turned. The digital team is incredible. Yes, and and, yes. and, and, and the stuff. The and show, he's had he's, he brought, had he's he's broke through. He's, he's like had his again. tentpole moments. Yes,
2: he's had his moments, his right. moments again of yes. moral clarity in times of social panic. Yeah, I mean, he really was one of the the go-to voices. I think. The summer of 2020, when the George Floyd stuff was happening, and the aha moment for me I had with him when he, he had his act one, Trump is an African dictator. <laughs> I thought that was such yeah, a great, yeah, like, yeah. hey, you're not seeing this this way. Right, Let right. me stretch the way you think about the world. But when I saw that, I was like, yeah, this guy is really special.
0: To go to the thing you said earlier, at the very beginning, where you're talking about like, why having more time and being able to kind of show various things like that you're interacting in good faith, that you're sincere, that allows people to appreciate things like there's a formats that work better for some people than for others. Yeah. There's a thing that that stuff really is enhanced And kind of create a good feedback loop, right? Where it's like he's doing stuff there that he couldn't do on the show, but it kind of reflects back on the show and makes him bigger and and gives him credibility and builds the audience on the show. It's really, it's nice to find, to see them finding a new model for how to make that work,
2: Yeah, and I think that is another thing that it's interesting when we talk about comedy. Even as you're playing old clips from the Patriot Act, how many jokes per second you kind of have to have? It's like exposition, joke, exposition, joke. And one of the things that's so tantamount to becoming... A great comedian is, you can't just be funny. Right. How interesting are you? Yeah. And Trevor is a very interesting person and a deeply interested person. Yeah. He's interested in a lot of things. He's very curious and very thoughtful. And those, those between the scenes convey that.
0: So I want to play one Daily Show thing, Hassan. You obviously did tons and tons of skits on the Daily Show. There was, thankfully, when you left in 2018, there were some compilation tapes that were put together that were kind of best of, Hasan Minaj on The Daily Show, and, and this popped up in one of those. It's a, a famous report that you did with Justin Trudeau, and anything that gets both you and Justin Trudeau into a single clip, that's something that our listeners want to hear. So let's play that, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Okay, Canada. From their awful beer to their
2: god-awful Canadian tuxedos, they've got a lot to apologize for. But now, they've got a new reason to say sorry, and it's coming to destroy America. I'm talking about
1: Syrian refugees.
2: Canada's super progressive Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has already allowed more than 25,000 of these potential terrorists into Canada. I decided to seek out the man who started this mess, the one Canadian who could shut this whole thing down. Why are you trying to destroy North America? You're letting anyone walk in and just up. North America was built with people fleeing persecution, um, conflicts, wars, trying to build a better life for themselves and their families. It's too open. It's too free. Mr. JT, I went to customs, and they were like, what are you here to do? And I'm like, I am here to roast Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And do you know what the guy said? Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. What if I came here to literally roast you? You might find that a little more difficult than you, uh, uh, than, than you think. Are you gonna kick my ass right now? Are you gonna literally roast me? No. Then we're fine. Those are the best moments
0: on the show, it's by the way. It's like so much fun.
2: Yeah, those are the best. Right?
0: I mean, you're talking to a head of state, right? Yeah. So like, I mean, it's kind of like a. It was the I best. Mean, it's the best. Was that the first time you've ever done anything like that? Yeah. It's the first you, time like, I not literally Trudeau, but I mean, going out and doing those kinds yeah. of things. You're like playing where a you're, reporter. Where you know? Yeah, and where you're sitting
2: down with, like, the prime minister of a country. Yes, right. Yeah, and he's kind of like. If you try to roast me, I will kick your ass. Yes. It's a very, even the reaction shot on that, it's a sincere reaction. To me, that's the best comedy where it's grounded in a very real yet
0: funny moment. The invention of that part, that yes. which Colbert also did yes. and, and others yes. have done. Many famous people have been Daily Show correspondents. Like with that format. model, that yes. format yeah, yeah, yeah. has
2: served them really The kind well. of idiot abroad and you have to commit to the bit. And you have a satirical comedic right. take on flipping right. the sort of local news package.
0: You were just like naturally really good at it. I mean, to the point where like there's a handful of people very quickly. I mean, look, you, you ended up talking to the White House Correspondents Center in 2017, right? Right, right. You started the Daily Show in 2014. 2014, right. Very like that's a very the, the in terms of speed right. of like you went like basically no one knew you in America yeah, to be yeah. someone giving a speech to the White House Correspondents' right. is that weird I mean it I want to very, talk about like fame and uh, because a lot of the King's gesture is about exactly this and a, yeah. on a much grander scale but yeah. like with that like was like wow like all of a sudden I'm yeah. this person it's very shocking because and I didn't realize
2: this and when you talk to people who work at SNL it's the same thing too. When you work at these sort of New York comedy institutions, you don't see the light of day. Like, I mean that sincerely. You get to the office at 9.15, and you'll just stay there. And sometimes you would stay there through taping. And when you're a young correspondent and you're not getting on the show, and I went through that, you'll stay longer and be like, okay, I have to research and I have to write pitches for tomorrow's 9.15. So you won't leave. And so I didn't get an understanding of the resonance the pieces were having until several years in and then – People are starting to recognize you when you're, you know, in the West Village or yeah. at the Comedy Cellar. And they're like, yeah. oh, my God, you're, you're on The Daily Show. You just think you're doing a black box theater show every night. Sure. The set is tiny on 604 yeah, West yeah, yeah, Second. Yeah. It's just this tiny little. Yeah, yeah. And you're just, you're, you're scrapping. And you, you talk to anybody at SNL or The Daily Show, every correspondent or cast member is like, I'm just scrapping to get on this week.
0: Right, and I think you know when you get to the point where you're well enough known the people on the street know it kind of. Yeah, yeah. It's like always a weird thing for anybody. Yeah. But like this, I mean, there's another thing though. You're suddenly being invited to go and speak at the White House Correspondents' yes. Dinner. Like, did yeah. that surprise you when they asked you that you had gotten to that point so, that quickly?
2: So the year before, I had done something called the RTCA Dinner, the Radio Television yeah, yeah, Correspondents' right. Association Dinner, yeah. which is yes. yeah. like.
0: It's like the... Sort of the bargain basement WACC. Yeah, yeah, the D-League. Yeah,
2: yeah, before you, you, yeah. And you try to play it and maybe you get drafted off, up. off, off-Broadway. Yeah, off, or way off-Broadway. Off Broadway, yeah. Yeah. It's over yeah. in Jersey. Yeah. And I did that, funny enough, and it's it's weird. I don't know if it's Destiny or Kismet. But I had to do that the week the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. And so it was this weird thing of like, how are we going to be funny in this very tense, strange moment in the country? And... Again, it's, this is where timing and being a comedian and understanding how to convey the right message at the right time, funny enough, so many sitting members of Congress were there and connecting the dots between, yeah, I'm going to do 15 minutes of jokes, but I would be remiss if I did not point out the NRA's involvement with Congress right. and the decision makers that could have prevented something as terrible as the Pulse nightclub shooting happening that week, yeah. you know? and. That became, again, another linchpin moment. And I think the WHCA saw that, yeah. Jeff Mason, and then invited me the next year to do the correspondence dinner.
0: So you go to do it. let talk about timing. It's the yeah. first correspondence dinner in yeah. the age of Trump. Yes. Trump is not in attendance. Right. I'll set the stage for this just yes. because yeah, I'm going to play just a little bit of it. But yeah. You say at the very beginning, yeah. I've been asked not to yeah. roast Donald Trump. Yes, yes. Which is like, okay, like, wait, what? Because yeah. I've been to some of those dinners, I'll yes. never go again. If God sure. smiles on me, I'll never have to go to one of those dinners again. Sure. But, but that's a weird request, yes. number one. Number two, the president's not there, so that's also weird. Yes, not roast very someone who's strange. not there. Yeah. very strange set of, of things. And then you do a great smart thing, which you've made fun of the press a lot, which is always all good. Sure, sure. And you did this thing where you talked about how the press were basically now like honoring minorities. Oh, right. right. and kind of yeah. the core. I thought in some ways was kind of the heart of it in some yes. ways to sort of say, yes. what's well, the point? Yeah. yeah. How did you get to
2: that? It's always working backwards. Yeah. It's the, hey, so what is the thing I'm really trying to say? And we actually started with that. And it's funny, Prashant and I, we kind of wrote that down
1: yeah.
2: of the, hey, your job is more important than ever. You're in a contentious relationship with the president. When one of you messes up, it somehow is reflective of the entire group, which was the Geraldo Rivera joke. Yes. And I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to be Muslim. This is what it feels like to be a minority. Yeah. Again, comedy is all about simile and metaphor. This is like that. Right. And the, the fastest you can get to that core distillation, that espresso, right. once you have that, grab onto it, man, and then start building from there. Funny enough, our friend Steve Bodo, yeah. he was a person. He was a big advisor to me. He was the showrunner at the Daily Show at the, at yes, the time. And he right? goes, this is what's most interesting. Yeah. Again, I'm not here to say. I, I ask Steve all the time. Yes. And, I, and shout out to all the OGs who have, like, helped me and mentored me. Hey, am I on the fast train to Naive Town? Because young comics do have that. And Steve was like, this is good. Yeah. There were some other takes we had. He's like, cut that. That's not great. Yeah. And I'm not even going to get into that stuff. But he was like, this is really interesting and unique, and only you can pull it off.
0: Everybody in their life needs a Steve Boto. Yeah, you do. Do the last edit. You really do. You really really do.
2: Steve's really great at that.
0: This, so this thing, you're basically like, you know, Trump has made made the press and enemy at a very basic level. The press an you know, yeah. were so were minorities in that sense. I mean, yeah. And he treats was, you know, if you're all the same, he can't tell the distinction. All the press is all fake news, right? right yeah, yeah. And the joke that you mentioned, which is, I hate to say it right now, you're all being represented by her. All by her. Rupert That's Rupert, funny. Yeah. Also, the not seeing Steve Bannon, not, oh, seeing, yeah. not seeing Steve Bannon. Yeah, that yeah. was well, you know, funny, good, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, right, just and, a little clever. Yeah, and you went after CNN, and you went after MSNBC, you went after all these people. Then you get to the end. And this is what happens, I'll play this part, which is you have said, you then repeat that you asked not to roast Donald Trump. And then this is what happens at the very end of the speech. Yeah. We are in a very strange
2: situation where there's a very combative relationship between the press and the president. But now that you guys are minorities, just for this moment, you might understand the position I was in it. And it's the same position a lot of minority kids feel in this country. And it's, you know, do I come up here and just try to fit in and not ruffle any feathers? Or do I say how I really feel? Because this event is about celebrating the First Amendment and free speech. Free speech is the foundation of an open and liberal democracy. From college campuses to the White House, only in America, can a first-generation Indian-American Muslim kid get on this stage and make fun of the president? (laughs) The orange man behind the Muslim (laughs) ban. And it's a sign to the rest of the world. It's this amazing tradition that shows the entire world that even the president is not beyond the reach of the First Amendment. but the president didn't show up. Because Donald Trump doesn't care about free speech. The man who tweets everything that enters his head refuses to acknowledge the amendment that allows him to do it. Think about it, it's, a, it's almost, what is it, 11? It's 11 p.m. right now. In four hours, <laughs> Donald Trump will be tweeting about how bad Nicki Minaj bombed at this dinner. And he'll be doing it completely sober.
0: Did you feel okay in that room? There, there were like, there was some, you were great, I thought. Just oh, like sure. Steven was great in Steven. Yeah. You know, when Steven, there were some quiet moments in that, so, in that gig.
2: Yeah, so if I'm going to be just really critical and harsh, and Steve would do this too, he'd be like, you were talking too fast and you were very nervous the first six minutes. Yeah. And then I kind of hit my stride around minute seven. Yeah. And it started to feel more natural and I kind of dropped into the room. Even that moment that you just played right now, like what time is it, 11? Yeah. This is gonna sound so dorky. Those are those comedy moments I want to keep working on right. of just like, hey, th- this isn't a scripted thing. This right. is just me being real in the room. Right. Yeah. And like the Jedi's that I look up to, they're like that 90% of the time where yeah. it's like, man, fuck the script. They could just be in that, it's 11, right? Like. They could eat and then get on stage. They're that relaxed. But that room is tough. And Stephen was the one who told me, you're not going to do great. Colbert. Colbert Colbert told me that. And Seth Meyers told me that as well. You're not going to do great. So just remember, you're playing to camera one. But I'm glad I said what I said at the end. And again, I got to thank Bodo for helping me with this. And Prashant, being the head writer there, you know, they say about Rick Rubin, they say, have you heard this? He's not a producer. He's a reducer. Some of my favorite comedy writers and people that I work with will just lift some of the extraneous stuff that I sometimes have in the script that allow those moments to land with a level of clarity. And it's wild, that idea of, do I toe the line? Do I not ruffle any feathers? It's interesting. It's just something that I've always kind of brushed against my entire career, because I had that same moment with Ellen with pronouncing my name.
0: Yeah.
2: And, you know, going down, my dad told me, like, I'm on the phone with the producer, and I'm feeling a certain way. And I remember my dad and my mom, they drove down. My mom's a huge Ellen fan. She works at the VA. She, like, took the day off and went down. And out of, like, a seven-minute interview, four of it is just, like, okay, let's just talk about, can we pronounce my name right? Because we can say Benedict Cumberbatch (laughs) perfectly fine. We're just walking around and saying Leonardo DiCaprio as if that's a normal-sounding name. (laughs) So can we just do Hassan? Like, can we, you know? And I remember it was the same thing. My parents were very upset that, like, why are you making a scene about
0: the stuff. Yeah. you know. Yeah. This is at the point, you're basically, it's not quite what you left The Daily Show, but it's getting close. And it's you, getting close. You know, you're yeah, getting close, right?
2: It's turning the corner, yeah. And I
0: think we'd be fair to say that the, the period after that is like, I, do you think of this as a Homecoming King, Patriot Act, and, and King's Jester are kind of of a piece, right? Yeah. That's the different era, right? Yeah.
2: Well, you know, funny enough, this happened, and then Homecoming King came out a month later. Right. And so, I think it was my real introduction to America. Yeah. Capital A America. Yeah. People who don't watch The Daily Show on Instagram and YouTube. It's like a lot of people watch the Correspondence Dinner. It gets put on the cover of the Washington Post, yeah. and the New York Times, and stuff like yeah. that. So it was my introduction to my political comedy and then Homecoming King like my personal. My personal story. It yeah. was like my X-Men origin story of this is who I am and this is my story in New Brown America.
0: We are gonna take one more break and we'll be back with more Hassan Minaj on Helen High One. And we're back with Hasan Minhaj on Hell in High Water. And Hasan, you, just before we went to break, you said this thing about the new brown America and that Homecoming King, your first Netflix special was kind of your, your coming out, introducing yourself to America on a broader stage. This, this special, widely heralded, much loved, massively lauded, and not really like anything anybody I would say has ever really seen or heard in a Netflix comedy special before. It was unique in a thousand ways. And I want to talk about all of them after we play a little bit of sound just to give you a flavor of what I mean. This is you in Homecoming King talking about some very culturally, racially, ethnically specific facts about the milieu in which you grew up and the worlds that you know so well. I think as soon as people hear it, you'll be like, that's really funny and really powerful and really different from anything I've ever heard a stand-up comedian or a monologuist ever do before. So let's play that right now from Homecoming King.
2: Look, immigrants aren't going to hit their children the way you guys do. Americans hit their kids on the arm and bruise their body. Immigrants slap you across the face and bruise your soul. It's Guantanamo of the mind. Do you know when brown kids get slapped at birthday parties? Every brown birthday party. And usually, it's the kid whose birthday it is. And we stand there. And we point at him. We laugh. We go, ah! Bijou got slapped on his birthday. And that's what makes us tough and resilient. And it's why we become cardiologists and win spelling bees, right? <laughs> Slapping is important, it elevates your game. Have you ever seen an Indian kid win the spelling bee? Incredible. Ice water in the veins, Kobe. That kid's not gonna choke on camera, he's been slapped on camera. Of course <laughs> he can spell canadal. Canadal. Look at that face, nothing, nothing. He's 12 years old. Nothing. This kid just won $30,000 cash. Nothing.
0: This is a different you yeah. than most America knew. Right? Yes. What felt necessary about putting that you out? Yeah. And what felt scary about it? Like, what was the calculus there? Because all the Daily Show stuff is an example of a way, like, I could talk about presidents and Rap stars. I can talk about anything, Like, I'm not talking sure. about me. And you can figure out who I am on the basis of the way I talk about it, but I'm not really talking about me. I can even tell some stories about me along the way, but I'm not really talking about me. Yeah. This is where you go, I'm going to make a thing about me. And I'm going to talk about stuff that like a lot of people don't normally talk about. Right. you know that this topic area is going to be something that a lot of comedy fans are going to go, I've never heard anything like this before. Right, you're right. going to open a door into a culture I know nothing about. Yeah. So what's going through your head as you're like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I hope to accomplish. And this is what scares me about it.
2: Yeah. I think. You know, funny enough, you had the great Mike Birbigli on the podcast, but I think I had kind of failed as a traditional stand-up to be candid with you. And what I mean by that is that when I look at some of the pure stand-ups that I really love that can just sit down on a stool and talk, Michael Che, Michelle Wolf, Chappelle, rock, you can put them up at an improv, two-drink minimum, in a basement, and they can rock for 60 minutes. And I think while... I can do that at a pretty proficient level. I think it was Mike and Colin Quinn who really introduced me to the dynamic range that was possible in comedy. And what they were doing in the theater space between Mike Rubiglia, Colin Quinn, and Bo Burnham, when I saw what they were doing to stretch the genre, they really inspired me. And I was able to follow Mike's path from doing the first prom story that became The Tent Pole and Homecoming King at The Moth taking that to the Sundance Labs, developing it at the Sundance Labs under the tutelage of Michelle Satter, and then taking it to Cherry Lane Theater all while I was at The Daily Show, you know? And so that was something that was just brewing underneath. And I was never able – it it was too big to fit in an act two. (laughs) It would never fit in an act two. There was so much in me that I wanted to share it was a risk. I didn't know how it would resonate. There are stand-up purists that are like, this isn't pure stand-up. But then again, it's really funny. When you look back on anything, you talk about Carlin, I don't think it was pure stand-up to be a Supreme Court case either. Like, I don't think that was what was intended for jazz club and nightclub comedians to do. So- I didn't know it at the time. You're just trying to express yourself as authentically as possible. But I think I could surmise that it resonated because for a long time, there was a huge group of people that did not have their experience synthesized in 72 minutes that way. And I think that was a calling card for New Brown America because so many people that I've met in the years since it came out were like, that special spoke to me. My life was so that, you know. The King's Jester is very different because yeah. it's just so what I've lived through. Yes, yes. But I feel like New Brown America rallied behind it because right. of that moment. Right.
0: And that's like if you were thinking about like how you've evolved. You yes. kind of just laid it out. You're just kind of like, you know.
2: This is who I am. Right. Yeah. And the King's Jester is why do I believe what I believe?
0: Yes, right.
2: It's really about that. Yeah. What is my relationship to jokes? And how far am I willing to take a joke? Right. Yeah.
0: The prom sure. night story, sure. just because you mentioned it, I could have yeah. done, there's another story in there, the 9-11 story yeah, yeah, with, sure, a, sure. with the, with the Camry window and yeah, yeah, all this. Yeah, yeah, Very not comedy. Yeah, yeah, you know, not comedy. Drama. But, you know, but drama. just, yeah. I want to play uh, a part of Homecoming King that you referred to a second ago, Hassan, um, where you talked about a tentpole story, which is the prom night story in, in Homecoming King. And, and you referred to it as being kind of in the tradition of Mike Birbiglia and, and Colin Quinn that story was, was a thing you developed at The Moth and, and at Sundance Labs, you eventually took it to Cherry Lane, the theater, and that that became an important, a key element, maybe the key element of the entire show in Homecoming King. There are a bunch of examples of, of things that I could use here where you kind of depart from comedy. They're not about making people laugh. There may be a few moments of laughter in them, but they are actually much more about drama and about emotion and about impact. And this prom night story is a very, very powerful example of that. So let's play that. And then we'll talk about it and the work it does for you and why it's here and why it works so well on the other side. I park my bike. I'm walking up to the doorstep and I'm about to ring the doorbell. I was like, no, 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 wait, take this in. 30 second timeout.
2: Do you understand what's about to go down? You're about to go to prom with Bethany motherfucking Reed. This is the American dream. This is what dad fought for. Ding dong. Mrs. Reed opens the door. She has this look of concern on her face. And I look over her shoulder. I see this dude, Jeff Burke, putting a corsage on Bethany's wrist. And she's like, oh my God, honey, Did Bethany not tell you? Aw, sweetie, we love you. We think you're great and we love that you come over and study, but you know, tonight's one of those nights where, you know, we have a lot of family back home in Nebraska and we're gonna be taking a lot of photos tonight, so we don't think it'd be a good fit. Do you need a ride home?
0: Wow, you haven't watched that in a long time. I mean, you can't be a human being and not be like, kind of like choked up a little bit. Right. 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 But it's like that is where you're like living in the space of theater and storytelling and trying to make people cry or not try to, but try to move them in a certain way. That's yeah. not at all about making anybody laugh. Yeah. There's barely a laugh in that. It's a minute and, a minute and eight seconds long. We yeah, yeah. There. There's a little laugh in the middle, but not really. There's not the humor's not really there. And that 9-11 yeah. story I mentioned is another one of those things. There's no laugh. There's some laughs around, but there's chunks of it where it's like it's just all drama and, and right. pain. Right. I mean, that's going in an interesting place.
2: You know, as a writing exercise, I remember Greg, who's the director of the show, as we were working on the show, was just write some of the most embarrassing moments in your life. Yeah. So we just started there. Yeah. And I remember when I would just workshop parts of the story, he's like, that's really interesting. This doorstep scene is very powerful and interesting. And it feels like it's something only you've experienced. But I think... I didn't find this out until later. There are so many people that I talked to later that had a similar doorstep scene, whether it was due to race or sexuality coming out of the closet, all of those things that I presented myself to the world and that was not accepted. And I think a lot of people were able to resonate with that, but it's not particularly comedic, but again, it's the dynamic range that theater and storytelling and comedy allow you to
0: explore, that theater allows you to, that you can't do in the comedy club. Right. So- I'm not going to play any Patriot Act, but sure. but I'll say there are two famous. Sure. The very first one is about Saudi Arabia and, uh-huh. and the Khashoggi killing, right? Yeah. Later, you do uh, a couple seasons later, I think, is when you do the one about the death of the news business By and Alden local news and mm-hmm. Alden Capital, big yeah. private equity hedge fund, whatever the fuck. Yeah, you yeah, are. yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of them play in King's Jester. The Patriot Act is like basically taking the Daily Show. Yeah. And they're 18 minutes long. right? Each, and you're like doing 18 minutes. on going deep on these topics. Right. We talked about a little bit about Patriot Act earlier. Obviously, an incredible show. Yeah. But it's, you know, you're still on these, you've got these tracks. There's that. Yeah. And there's a very, very highbrow version of a news show yeah, that yeah. would never be on cable. like not sure. cable, cable, cable news, not like MSNBC. or yeah, something yeah, and that shows incredible impact. In fact, you know, make, again, like you just talked about this resonating with Brown America, like every step up, you're getting better and better known. And the reason I'm focusing on the fame element of it is that is what King's Gesture is about, right. is essentially all this stuff is happening yeah. very fast. Yes. You are getting more and more famous. Yes. For different kinds of things. Yeah. The banner carrier for Brown America, yeah, the yeah. Smallest, smartest people in political sure, commentary, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that stuff, right? And you are getting, by your own account, if I believe what I heard at Radio City Music Hall, yeah. uh, becoming kind of a narcissistic asshole yeah. of just like absorbed in the fucking tweet world. And all you're doing is like, you are you know, you, and that's what the examination, is that fair to say yes. that's what King's Jester is, yeah. an examination of your own narcissism, the kind of headspace of the monkey on your back of yeah. the tweet and click culture yeah. and all of that shit and what the costs and benefits are and how to reckon with it all it's for you and comedy. your family. Yep. Just talk about like, you're about to shoot the special. We'll all get to see it on Netflix fairly soon. You're gonna do it in June yeah, yes, yeah, here yeah. in New York City. Here in
2: New York City, yep, at
0: BAM in Brooklyn. Just for people who haven't seen King's Jester, it's an incredible show. Uh-huh. I've told you that the night I saw it, but right. everything up to now that's happened to you in this incredible decade you've had yeah. is sort of reflected in this thing.
2: Yeah. If I were to give you the log line for folks who haven't seen it, and if you've listened to this conversation, comedy was this thing in my life that gave me an incredible amount of control. And comedy is also one of those things when I took it too far, made me lose a lot of control in my life. Yeah. And it put my family through a lot, it put my marriage through a lot. And the King's Jester is an exploration on how far I'm willing to take a joke. This thing that originally gave me control, but I lost a lot of fucking control. Past what does what, that mean? The cost that it had on me, my faith, my ability to make my pilgrimage, my hudge, because of the stuff that I've done, needling dictators and autocrats, the threats that my family have faced, thankfully they didn't, they weren't successful, and the impact that it had on my marriage because I've talked about this in Homecoming King and I talk about this in The King's Jester. What me and Bina had to go through to get married and then even have kids, we had a lot of fertility problems. And then to know that, Jokes were something that saved my life, but then almost cost me my family's life, is a line that, yeah, I'm not willing to cross anymore. And I explore how clout chasing, clickbait, the thrill of provocation can get you pretty drunk.
0: All things you just said make sound like a very supremely serious thing. It's fucking hilarious, right? It's uh, really yeah, funny. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a comedy show. It's a comedy it's, no, show. No, and it there, really yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It's True. high energy. It's not only just comedy. It's your usual energy level. Yeah, yeah. You're, I'm doing voices and impressions yeah, and like stories. it's like you're like yeah. your, your usual self, and you're yeah. moving around. You're like all the stuff you do. Yeah. So it's not like a somber thing. Sure. But the themes in the middle of it are all about this, and I won't Correct. give away the the sort of spoiler of the moment when things come to a head, where it becomes yeah. most, where the risk and yeah. the threat becomes most acute yeah. and most palpable. Yes, and it outweighs
2: the reward significantly.
0: What has happened to it over the hundred or odd shows? Is it just really about the way that anything the piece of writing is just reducing all of the inessential and getting down to yes. that thing you just said? The log line is everything. And any joke, even if it works, that doesn't serve that, yes. got to go.
2: Yes. And Steve has been incredibly helpful at that. And Prashant has been incredibly helpful at that as figuring out the core essence of, yeah, this is the point of the show. Comedy was this tool that gave me control. And it's also something when abused made my life go out of control. What is my line? And I, I find that oddly prescient given everything that's being talked about right now with comedy, cancel culture, and what is the line? Yeah. But I wanted to use my own personal story. Yeah, fuck getting pulled into the news headlines of what this comedian can or can't say. I'm here to tell you what I'm willing to not
0: Say. Yeah. And you actually come up with a formula yeah. in a way. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I don't a, want to give it away. Not, but, no, I'm not going to give it yeah. away either. I'm just saying, that's, it's, it's, but it's, it's not a, a mathematical formula, yeah. but it's a way of judging in a pretty clear way in your head where you can be like, this is where I'll draw a line of, and this is where I yeah, want Yeah. And I
2: certainly hope the audience walks away understanding through my story is, hey, we all get to say whatever the fuck we want. Yeah, There is a cost though. Yeah, There is a cost to freedom of speech, and are you willing to pay the VIG? And we all have to adjudicate that for ourselves. Yeah. You obviously work in media. We, we get to tweet whatever we want. You get to say whatever we want. We get to poke whoever we want. But we have to figure out how do we want to move and navigate in this. And it's interesting. Comedy isn't just this basement-dwelling art form for me anymore. Yeah. I'm now doing it on some pretty big stages. And so yeah. I have to figure out, hey, what type of jokes am I willing to do?
0: I and mean, when people remember back, I think it was at the end of 2018 when there was that guy who was sending all those pipe bombs to people. And none of them blew up. Yeah. So Obama, Clinton, all these people. Yeah, yeah. And they arrested that guy. Uh, I was shot shooting the circus. I got back home, and the FBI called me after they arrested him, and was like, "Just want to let you know that you were on a list. There was a list. Shit. There was a list of." And my wife had been going, "Do you think like it's a good like like should we be worried about the package room? This all was happening. Yeah. A couple of media people have been targeted. I was like." Ah, don't worry about it, it be fine. And then they called and they're like, he's in jail, so it's fine. But there was a list that you were on a list Holy of like 25 shit. people. And it, again, it's not, you know, I mean, nothing happened to me. I was never in real jeopardy. The, yeah. None of the bobs worked for one thing, but it still makes you think about it at that moment. You're like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. like, that makes it real in a way. That- and, you,
2: and you talk about, you know, we, we've been talking about control this entire conversation. You start to just realize, especially given everything that's going on right now, how little control you actually have in your life.
0: Yeah. You know what I mean? when you're out there, out there, and you start to realize, and given the way the country is right now, it's right. At some point, I remember thinking back in like 2012, in the Obama re-election, yeah. I realized there was a moment where like, if I went on television and someone said, what are Barack Obama's chances of getting re-elected? I would say, you know, the economy's not been that great, but he's a very powerful political communicator. He's going to have a lot of money in the Republican field is weak. I'd say, I think he's a mild favorite for re-election. And I would get on Twitter, hundreds of of people from the right saying, stop sucking Barack Obama's dick. Holy shit. And I get hundreds of people on the left, uh-huh. often a lot of African-American ladies who be like, you hate the president, you fucking racist. <laughs> and that was when I realized it was out of my control. Right. I would try to find the most neutral, mild thing on one hand. On the other hand, I was yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't actually matter what I say because those right. people are going to be, unless I say he's God or Satan, yeah. they're going to hate me. And right. so it's like, at some point you go, i got no control of yeah, that yeah. because that's the way the culture is so out of control that right. like, it kind of doesn't matter what, I mean, there are some. I could do that would probably really get me killed. But playing it safe doesn't get you to safety, as it turns out, because wow. so much of it's outside your yeah, control. control. Totally. And I think it's probably true in your case too, right? Yeah. You know, and asking,
2: just a, For me, it's asking myself within, hey, what do I really want to say vis-a-vis my family and yeah. my wife specifically? And knowing that that's the path forward. I can't listen to the other noise.
0: And I mentioned the Khashoggi and the, the Saudi Arabia and the Alden thing because yeah. they both play in King's Jester and they both are examples of things where one of them, I mean, the Khashoggi thing, I don't think it was first, first episode, second episode of the yeah. show. Yes. I don't think you recognized what it was going to do. No. By the time you got to the Alden Capital episode, yeah. you were now starting to make calculations around that. And mm-hmm. it's interesting as it plays out in King's Gesture. like You're dawning awareness yes. of the power and the anger of the stuff you can do in right. the service of comedy and just being smart. Yes. I mean, that's an important reckoning, but it's not a reckoning you necessarily would have expected when you started like, wow, oh, hey, I say shit. And like-
2: yeah. Oh, I poke this and it pokes back. Yeah. And that's a very intoxicating feeling. Yeah unless it goes awry.
0: Yeah. The social media stuff in King's Chester is also crazy. Oh, great. I got to ask you one last question, which you think is actually going to be meaningful. So the thing I learned in King's Chester, which I did not know, is that you no longer live in New York City. Yes. People who are great friends of yours, I'm sure you've known this for a while, you live in Connecticut. Yeah. And what I perceive on the basis of stereotypes (laughs) to be a very white affluent suburban bedroom community, which we won't name. Yes. But you may even talk about it in King's Chester. I can't remember if you name it, but it feels interesting to me that living in basically suburban uh, Connecticut is meaningful. What does it mean to you, to your family? Like taking that step to go move as a brown man who was a a, a kid from not super urban California, but lived in a lot of urban places, very much an urban creature, comedy person, comes here, succeeds in New York, in the hotbed, the whole thing we were just describing. And then like, I'm going to move to Connecticut, thank you. I don't mean why did you do it, but I mean, what does it mean that you did it? <laughs> I know you're and just what, like, what's your deal, bro? Well, I, I do that? slightly. It's nothing I like would <laughs> sure. ever do. But then, you know, I'm a sure. white dude. Whatever. I don't know. I, yeah. I, all I know is that it's not a step you just did, took lightly, and it must mean something about your family. It has some greater significance than just a change of scenery.
2: Yeah. It's a lot of it. I think it's interesting. You know, when we had our son, we were still living in Manhattan, and we've lived in this city for eight years. It really, you're right. It, like, it shaped who I am. yeah. I really claim New York as my city, especially as a comedy city. It gave me everything in my career. When my son was born, just candidly, the two bedroom apartment in Hell's Kitchen just wasn't cutting it. Mm -hmm. And I was fast asleep in the living room with my mother in law, asleep on the floor. And I'm like, how did I come back to being an open micer all over again? Where I'm like, (laughs) asleep on an air mattress. But funny enough, I would go on these writers' retreats, and there was a cabin in Connecticut that myself, John Mullaney, and sometimes Mark Birbiglia would use to write. And it was an Airbnb, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I reached out to the guy who runs Airbnb and said, okay, hey, can, we, can we stay out here for a little bit? Yeah. And as I got to know the community, you know, I realized I can't live in rural Connecticut. I'm not the woods guy. We had a wasp problem. I'm like, I'm not the wasp guy. <laughs> I'm just not that guy. Yeah. But I remember having a conversation with the landlord and he said, I think you might like this other particular part of Connecticut where there's more of a community. There won't be a whole lot of people who look like you, but there's great public schools. It'll be great for your family. Why don't you give it a try? And I had a long conversation with my wife about it. And I don't know if we're going to be there forever, but we did have a conversation about, hey, it's not Brooklyn, and it's not Hell's Kitchen, and it's not Manhattan. Yeah. But one of the things I told Bina is I said, I don't think we can move with fear. Like, I want to be able to walk in any room and say, yeah, we belong here. You can check the resume. You can check our LinkedIn. Yeah, we should be here too. And there's part of me at this, maybe in this stage, we won't be there forever, but there is a little bit of a defiance in it of like, I'm not going to preclude myself from being there. I'm not going to just stand out. Yeah. Yeah, I can move here. We may not be there forever, but we're there. We've signed our lease at least until next June.
0: I'm praying. And I just
2: want to move the way I want to move and the way we want to move. Totally.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like you want to prove that you can go and belong there, and then you realize like there's a reason. Why there. would I? Like yeah. why the fuck am I here? Like, yeah. I not, this is what I'm hoping for for you. As, sure. As as, as as an older gentleman, uh, sure. I look at you and I think to myself, son, I hope you'll find a great comfort there, and you'll look up and you'll say, uh-huh. well, "Fuck yeah, we belong here." Uh-huh. Used to be a people like us who would never belong here. Now we belong here, and we have just enough power to get the fuck back uh, get to the, the, the city. Fuck out, yeah. To get back to the city where there's culture and yeah, the, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, Like totally. a bunch of people who are not totally. you know bankers. Look, what we'll talk outside of the podcast if
2: you can find a great place with a yard. That'd be great. Yeah.
0: You're awesome dude. Thank you Thanks, for uh, Thank you for hanging out. Thank you man. Cheers. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Hasan Minaj for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Pierre Benamé engineered the podcast. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And The Marshall Eisen is our executive producer.